So far in the book of Matthew, we have covered quite a bit. We have seen the birth of Christ, and that pretty much came from Joseph's perspective. We have seen the wise men come from the east, bringing the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Uh, We have seen Jesus' family flee from Bethlehem down into Egypt uh, because of Herod killing all the babies. And then upon word from the Lord, they moved again out of Egypt and, and settled in Nazareth. We've been introduced to John the Baptist, and he was living out in the wilderness. He was clothed in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey, and calling the people to repent and baptizing them in the Jordan River. He himself declared himself as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We saw Jesus being baptized. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus taken into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he was tempted by Satan himself. And each time he overcame temptation with the word of God. As Satan would manipulate and twist the word of God, Jesus would settle and say, it is written. And he continually overcame his temptation with the word of God. Jesus has chosen some of his disciples, has begun healing and great multitudes. And he says here he's preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. His popularity, this is Jesus, his popularity is growing. People are coming from all over to see him and to listen to him and to be healed. He's casting out demons. He's healing epileptics. He's healing paralytics. He's healing everybody that's coming to him. And then as we opened up chapter 5, we came to the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on the mountainside on the edge of the Sea of Galilee Galilee there. He sat down and he began to teach not only his apostles, the 12 apostles, but all of those other people that would have been gathered around to hear what he had to say. The first 12 verses we studied in chapter 5, they were known as the Beatitudes. And they all begin with the word blessed, which means happy. Happy or joyful are those people. They hold the key to joy and happiness in the life of a believer. Blessings. And they even, they even, I even talk about how they're the steps to maturity and faith and how you start out just mourning for your sin and how you start out, you know, you walk through those steps. Blessed is the poor in spirit. You realize I'm, I'm broken in spirit. Then you mourn over your sins. Then you become meek, which isn't weak. It's strength under control. And we talked about those are hungering and thirsting for righteousness all the way down to persecution. We covered all of those in detail in our previous study. Last week we came to verses 13 through 16 where Jesus told the disciples that they were salts and they were the lights of the earth. And in verse 16 he told them this, he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. From there he's going to turn his focus to the law which is what they know as Jewish people. The law is important to them. He's going to turn his focus and begin to speak to them about the law. Read with me or follow along with me in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read down to verse 20, and then we'll come back and talk about it. He says this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
like Jesus, the religious teachers, the religious leaders of that day, they were known as the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they were also spreading a message or ministering to people. However, the ministry of Jesus, it looked a whole lot different from what the people were used to. They were used to seeing and hearing from the Sadducees and the priests and the the Pharisees. They were used to hearing what they had to say, but Jesus' ministry was different. Both of them spoke of a coming kingdom, but they lived and they acted very differently. Jesus, in his life, he was marked by humility, love, and kindness, meekness. The Pharisees, the leaders of that day, the religious people, so to speak, they were marked with the pride and arrogance, a belief that they were better than everybody else. They were, held, they, they were held in higher esteem. Why did they think they were better? Because they kept the law better than everybody else. They were better at following the rules. They did what the rules said, and they, they presented on an outward appearance that they were always keeping the law better than everyone else, on the outside, that is. When Jesus spoke, it was with authority. It was with boldness, it was with power, and it was with understanding. When the Pharisees would speak, when the religious leaders spoke, it was with uncertainty. It was with pride. It was simply always referring to what a priest had said before them. It wasn't with the same boldness the Lord Jesus spoke. When Jesus ministered to the people, when he was around the people, he associated with the brokenhearted. He was around those that were hurting. He wasn't isolated. He was around those who had diseases. He hung out with sinners. He was around people that the religious leaders never would have been around. He served people. He touched people. He loved people. He healed people. He did the things the Jewish leaders could not do and would not do for fear of being found unclean. The Pharisees, they stayed away from people. They wanted to present themselves as religious and spiritual. They wanted to keep themselves holy. They were concerned with their outward appearance. And they became very prideful in their religion. You see, Judaism was built upon the law, the law of Moses. That's what it was founded upon. It was a set of rules by God to man. These are the things, if you want to follow God, if you want to associate with God, if you want to please God, you have to keep the law. That's that's what the religion is founded on. They believed the way to please God was to keep the law. And in doing so, they would use the other person as their standard. Perfection wasn't necessarily their standard. They would take the law, they would manipulate it, they would twist it, they would interpret it in a way where it benefited them. And they were always concerned with the outward appearance and not the inward appearance. How it looked to everybody else. Through their traditions, they manipulated, they reinterpreted, they reapplied the laws of God. They disregarded. They disregarded the intent or the heart of the law. What God really meant when he gave it to them. What God really wanted to work on when he gave it to them. And they shaped those laws into rules that could be followed in the flesh for outward glory. Followed in the outward so they could, uh, they could uh, uh, impress people with the way that they dressed, the way that they spoke. The problem they had was they kept the law out of duty. It was their duty. There was no love for God. It was a love for the law, if you will. It was a love for a thing of God. It was, it was duty. It was, a, it was a dutiful response. Their righteousness, how the, their right standing before God was loveless. It was legalistic, and it was very self-righteous. How'd you do it keeping the law today? 
Had to do it following the rules. If you did well, then you stood right before God. If you did poorly, then you didn't stand right before God. But you got to interpret what was good and what was bad. Why was the law given in the first place? Why did they even have the law? The intent of the law was to show them and to show us that we needed a savior. That they couldn't keep the law. They were supposed to try to keep the law and fail. They were supposed to realize how difficult it was, how, how, how hard it was for them to keep the law. And after failing, they would come to the response of, it's impossible. We can't do it. We've tried, we've tried, we've tried. We can't do it. I need help. And they would realize their need for a savior. And Christ would be that Messiah coming on the scene to deliver them from the law, which he was. Paul said this about the law in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. He said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You see, the problem with living under a law is the law will tell you what to do. And it'll tell you what not to do, but it doesn't give you any power to follow it. You see, the law lays out the rules and the regulations for what you can do and what you can't do. But it doesn't give you the power to keep those regulations. You're left only relying on your own flesh. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, gives us the power to keep those things that he puts in front of us. To accomplish the will, his will, that he puts in front of us. We do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. When Christ came on the scene, he told us he fulfilled the law. He's not getting rid of the law. He fulfilled the law because we couldn't keep it. And now our lives are wrapped up in him. Here's what I want to show you. With Jesus' ministry on the rise, his popularity is growing. People are coming from all over. The question would certainly arise to him, Jesus, what do you think about the law and the prophets? You're acting different than all the religious leaders. Your ministry doesn't look like everybody else's. How come you're so different? What are you trying to do? Are you here to trample on the law and ignore our traditions? Are you here to walk over what everybody's done before you? Don't you care what the prophet said? Look at his response to that question. Verse 17, he wants them to know, he wants it to be clear, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to, what? Fulfill. I came to fulfill it. In other, words, in other words, he's saying, no, I'm not here to get rid of the law. I'm not here to reject or dismiss the prophets. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Now, this Greek word for fulfill, really interesting word. Here's what it means. If you're taking notes, circle it and write it down in your Bible. It means to give true or complete meaning to something. To give true or complete meaning to something. It means to provide real significance, to complete real intent or real purpose. In other words, Jesus is saying this, I am not ignoring the law or the prophets. Instead, I came to fulfill. I came to explain to you the true meaning of the law. I came to explain to you what's really meant by the laws. I'm going to explain to you what the law really means and what it should look like in your life. This is what, a, when, when the law says this, I'm going to show you what that should look like. I'm going to show you what it means. Over the next several chapters, we're going to get to watch as Jesus himself explains the true meaning of the law. The heart of the law versus the letter of the law. You see, the Jewish Pharisees, the leaders, they were concerned what it looked like on the outside. But Jesus, he's going to go after the inside. 
He's going to say everything happening on the outside of the man is just what, the result of what's happening on the inside of the man. What's happening on the outside of your life is a direct result of what's going on in the inside of your life. And he's going to address the fact that a lot of these leaders have become really good at putting up a good image on the outside. But inside, they're still a mess. They're still very far from keeping the law. And they've interpreted the law and twisted it in a way where it looks like they're keeping the law, but it's not the way that God intended. So that's what we're going to begin to look at as we go. Yes, Jesus would completely fill, fulfill the law. He would perfectly obey all the laws of Scripture, not necessarily man's interpretation of those laws, but he would fulfill every law. Over the next few years, Jesus will live out that true meaning, literally fulfilling the law and all of its requirements. He's not doing away with it. He's fulfilling it. He's going to explain to his apostles what it really means, and he's going to demonstrate it with his very own life. It's going to be a beautiful picture as we continue seeing this. He's often, you'll see that he often challenges man's interpretation of the law. He often is confronting the Pharisees, especially when it comes to Sabbath regulations. But I want you to know he never broke the law. He fulfilled the law exactly the way it was intended, the heart of the law, the way that God intended to be fulfilled. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He goes on there in verse 18, he says this, For assuredly, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. What's a jot? What's a tittle? There were small little marks in the Hebrew writing. Each of these small little marks had the ability to change what a word meant. They, they, they looked like next to nothing, but they had a big meaning when you would, when you would write. What's, he, what's Jesus telling them? Or Jesus is telling them and he's telling us that not only the, are the ideas of the word of God important, but the words themselves are important. Every jot, every tittle, every, everything is important. Each word is highly regarded by the Lord. You know, in Psalm 138, Jesus said, I've magnified my, or God said, I've magnified my word above my name. It's important. The word of God is important. Everything about the word is important. That's why we study it the way we do. That's why we memorize and we hide in our hearts. That's why we hold on to the promises of the word. That's what gets us through difficult times. It's all important. Now he goes on to tell them that what happens if you break the law or teach someone wrongly concerning the law. Look at verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments... And teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who's this directed at? Certainly he's talking to the apostles here. But who's he really getting at? He's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He's talking about the leaders of that day. That's who he's talking about. The way, In other words, what he's saying is the way you're interpreting the things of the Lord is important. It matters. You better take it seriously. It can be the difference between being the least or being great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he says, if you do them and teach them. In other words, it's not just about teaching something, but it's about doing something. It's about living out what you're teaching. If you do them and teach them, it's not just enough to teach. We must live it out. When it comes to the things of the Lord, you shouldn't hear, do as I say, not as I do. It shouldn't be, no, no, let, let me tell you how you're supposed to live, but don't live the way that I'm going to live. You see, sometimes we as Christians make that mistake. 
I'm going to tell you how to live when we look at, back at your own life and you go, well, don't, no, 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 I don't, I don't, don't follow me. What did the Apostle Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Our lives should be examples to non-believers. It says, no, follow me. It should never be, well, no, no, I, I don't really do it right. Why not? If you know you're living wrong, why don't you change what you're doing? If you know you're living simple, why don't you change it? Why, don't you, why is it okay to continue? It's not. It's not. To the Jews, the Jewish people, the law was how they related to God. Their whole religion was based on it. It was the rules they followed. It was the, it was the ruler. It was the measuring stick. It was the yardstick of how they determined where they stood before the Lord. Under the law, they became very self-righteous. Instead of the law showing them that they needed a savior, they became very self-righteous because they held the law and they lived it better than everyone else. In other words, they looked around for their standard and their standard was their person sitting next to them. It would be like you looking around going, well, I'm a better Christian than she is. Well, I know what he did last week. I'm a whole lot better than he was. You see, that's not, it doesn't matter how much better someone is than the person sitting next to you. Yeah, they might be worse than you. But if there's sin in your life that's not covered by the blood of Christ, you'll still be sent to hell for it. That's just the way that it goes. That's what the word of God tells us. This is, they, were, they were becoming self-righteous because they were putting on an outward show. It looked like and it appeared that they were the super Christians. I know they weren't Christians yet. They were the super leaders. They were the super religious people. They, they were the ones that people were looking up to. And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to pierce that outward appearance and he's going to go look at their hearts. And through the next coming verses, he's going to show their hearts. You see, when trying to keep the law, when you, when you, show, when you study through these rest of verse, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, you should come to the place that I can't do this. It's not going to, yes, it's a standard that we want to try to live our life by. But you're going to also find out that you can't do that. Because Jesus is going to, he's going to peel back the outward and go, I'm going to look at your heart. I'm going to go deeper than what it appears on the outside. Because sometimes we can put up a pretty good front, can't we? We can put our hair on, do our hair, makeup, put our hair on some of us. I don't know. Whatever it is, however we do it. We can make ourselves look pretty good on the outside. But on the inside, what do we really look like? Where are we really at? That's what he's going to go after. So do we need, still need to keep the laws of the Old Testament? No, it's believers. All the commandments and the laws, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We don't need to necessarily keep them. They've all been fulfilled. For example, sacrifices commanded by the law. But that sacrifice was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb. That was fulfilled. We don't run into the danger of being called least in the kingdom of heaven because we're not observing animal sacrifices. That was fulfilled in Christ. Look at verse 20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means, no means, enter the kingdom of heaven. This must have been a shock to the people. This must have been, this, this, this is like a real humdinger to them. They, this is, you, you just said that about the scribes, and the, that's the religious leaders. Those are the super spiritual people. That's the people that you would look at and go, oh, I wish I could be spiritual like them. I mean, th these are the people that are way up there in the, in the spiritual food chain, or at least in your opinion. And look what Jesus just said, that unless your righteousness is more than theirs, there's by no means you're getting into the kingdom of heaven. It's just not happening. The Pharisees, they, they were, when it came to the law, they were there. They were so scrupulous in keeping the law, they would even 
take a little tithe from their, their herb gardens. They would tithe of their mint and they would tithe of their leaves. And they would tithe everything just perfect. They were precise. But they lacked a true desire to please God. They wanted to follow a system. It was more about a show before men. They'd pray in the streets. They'd want to be recognized in the marketplace. It was all about them. It wasn't about the Lord. Look how spiritual I am. Sadly, we can still find people like that today. Maybe they're not dressed in the traditional uh, Jewish outfits of that day or the clothing of that day, but they're still out there. As I I even describe this person, you're thinking of somebody. Don't, Don't tell us who it is, please. You're thinking, I know that person. They want everyone to think they're so spiritual, but really inside they're, they're not. They're hard, they're, it's not really who they are. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. Listen to what he said about his fleshly experience with the law. I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what he said. Towards the end of verse 3, he says this. Philippians chapter 3, the end of verse 3, he says, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh no confidence in the flesh then he says though i also though i also might have confidence in the flesh i might have confidence in the flesh if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh i have more or i'm more so so paul says this don't have any confidence in your flesh and if you think that your flesh is okay and you think that you, and you have you, you're pretty good trust me i'm better I've I've kept the law better than you have. I've done better than you have. Just trust me, I'm better than you have. That's what he says, if if you've done. Then he goes on to lay it out why. He says in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 3, he says, circumcised the eighth day. That means Paul says, from eight days old, I was following the law. I was born and circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And concerning the law, he said, I'm a Pharisee. That's it. You couldn't get any higher. That, That was them. They were the keepers of the law. Concerning zeal, concerning passion, Paul said this, persecuting the church. Now, if you know anything about Paul, he was passionate about God. Even before he was saved, he was passionately persecuting the church because he thought it was against the Lord. His zeal and his passion, it didn't change after he got saved. The focus changed. Instead of being against Jesus Christ, he became for Jesus Christ. It carried on. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, Paul said this about himself, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. You can't find anything in my life that would say I could violate the law, in other words. On the outward appearance, Paul's saying, you could look at my life and you would find nothing wrong. You could follow me around. I'm blameless. But he'll also come to later tell us the problem was internally. And he says this in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, but what things were gained to me? In other words, what did I gain by this? He says, these, all this that I can do, the fact that I'm blameless, the fact that I was zealous, the fact that I've kept the law, the fact that I'm a Pharisee, all of these things, he would say, I counted loss for Christ. They're nothing. They mean nothing. He would go on, I'm going to read to you from verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish you know what rubbish is garbage it's what you take out on garbage day and put out so the garbage man can take it away from your house that's rubbish that's what paul says all of these good things that you would look at my life all of these accomplishments that you would commend me for all these things that you would raise me up it's all garbage it's all junk it's garbage that i may why paul that i may gain christ and be found in him 
not having my own righteousness. You see, Paul says, I don't want my righteousness. All of that was good and it was better than you, but I don't want my righteousness. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. In other words, Paul says, righteousness. I got a choice. I can choose my own or I can choose the righteousness that comes through Christ. And I'm going to take the righteousness that comes through Christ. And all of my righteousness is better than all of your righteousness. That's what the Apostle Paul is laying out there. He goes, and all of my righteousness that you would that you would say is so good it's all garbage choose christ that's what he's talking about there that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means i may attain the resurrection from the dead turn back with me if you turned over back to matthew let's look at these next few verses as jesus begins to give them the complete meaning of the law he's going to take the law from an outward appearance and he's going to pierce their inner man, their inner woman, and look at their hearts. But let me say this before I start. It's not Jesus against Moses. It's not, it's not an argument about who's right or who's wrong. Really what it is, it's Jesus is coming against their false and superficial interpretation of the law of Moses. They've interpreted the law wrongly, and Jesus is going to come against them. And his goal here is to set them straight. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they make two mistakes in their interpretation of the law. Number one, they restrict God's commandments. They restrict it, as in the law of murder. It was only on the outside. They taught that murder was wrong. Everyone would agree that. But the inside, the heart that was there behind it, they didn't talk about that. That wasn't against the law. Number two, they extended God's commandments past his intention. In other words, the law of divorce. They, they took it farther than God wanted to take it. They, they, they didn't get the true understanding. They just, they made it, they, they molded it and adapted it so to, to their benefit. So they could do what they wanted to do. Let's look in verse 21. He says this. You've heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. In that day, the people listening to a rabbi, they had nothing to gauge the rabbi's message by. You see, you're sitting here, and you can follow along in your Bible, and you can see, am I really saying what the Bible says? You have that luxury. Back in that day, they didn't have it. Up, up until recently, until printing became so popular, people didn't have Bibles and scriptures and scrolls. It wasn't in every home. You relied on what somebody said. You never read the scriptures. If the rabbi or the pastor would have said something, you just assume that's what the Bible said. You didn't really know if he was misquoting or misrepresenting. When Jesus refers to, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he's referring to what was taught to them, what's been handed down through their oral teachings and their traditions. Now, everybody would agree that murder was wrong. Everybody would agree that the intentional killing of another human being for purely personal reasons, whatever those reasons might be, that's wrong, right? We all, everybody in this room agrees murder is wrong. We all, we all got that. And the rabbis taught that murder was wrong, but they stopped right there. But have you ever considered what it takes to happen in a, in a person's heart to get to the point of murdering somebody else? You see, you don't start at murder. There's a whole lot that happens in the heart of a man before the sin comes out, whatever it is. And that's what Jesus is going to address here. That's where he's going to go. Think of it this way. What he's talking about murder, it's the symptom of an illness in the heart. The inner man is sick, and the symptom is he did something like murder. 
There's something going on within their heart that's causing this to happen. There needs to be a change of heart. The killing of another human being didn't begin with the violent act. It began with a violent heart. It began with a heart that's hardened. It's, it's turned against the things of the Lord. Murder is the outward act. Let's watch as Jesus exposes the heart in verse 22. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell, fire. Those who murder are in danger of judgment. Those who are angry are in danger of judgment. Those who say Raka are in danger of the council. Those who say, you fool, are in danger of hellfire. What's the difference? Well, judgment refers to a court hearing. Some of your Bibles, if you're reading a New American Standard Bible, it even translates that word court there. It's you're in danger of going before a court and being found guilty and sentenced, a sentence being handed down. Both the murder and the angry person are in danger of being judged before the court for their sins. Well, what does raka mean? It means to someone, it's, it's essentially, if it, what, what it means is they're in, you're insulting someone's intelligence. You're, you're, in, you're, you're calling them a name. You're calling them nitwit, stupid, retarded, blockhead. Whatever it is you can think of, you're, you're insulting someone's intelligence. That's, that's, you're calling them a name that way. And William Barclay said this. He said, raka is, almost untr- is an almost untranslatable word because it describes a tone of voice more than anything else. Ooh. Does your tone of voice matter? You better believe it does. Your tone of voice more than anything else, its whole accent is the accent of contempt. It is the word of one who despises another with arrogant contempt. Perhaps you said the right thing in the wrong tone before. Perhaps you said the right thing with the rolling of the eyes or with the long... Have we ever done that? Of course we have. Why? That's what's going on in our hearts. We can perfectly acknowledge the authority above us, or even sometimes our husbands and our wives. Yes, dear. The tone expresses what's really going on in the heart. I may have said the right thing, but what's my heart really saying? I don't really like it. I don't want to do it, but yes, dear. Or the rolling of the eyes. We've all done that at some point or another. What about if it says... Oh, the council. They go to the council. What's the council? It's the highest Jewish authority. You're in danger of getting in trouble. You're going to the council. They exercise jurisdiction in civil and religious matters, but they didn't have power over life and death or military actions or taxation. But you're going before the council if you're, if you're insulting somebody. What about to say you fool? To say you fool. If raka is to insult someone's intelligence, to, say, to call someone a fool there, it refers to insulting their character, who they really are. Their, their character. Any one of these broke the heart of the law regarding murder. All of these things are happening in a person's heart before they ever kill somebody else. It, it, it's, it, it's a buildup, if you will. It's, if you go to the doctors and you're sick, and all the doctor ever does is treat the symptom, and they never get to the heart of the problem, they never get to the root of the problem, you're not really any better, you just don't feel it anymore. You, you just, it, it's, it's, and sometimes they can't, they don't know why and things like that, but, but what you want is you want, the, you want the problem fixed. You don't want to just cover up the symptoms. That's what he's trying to get at here. It's the heart. The leaders, the Jewish leaders focused on the outward. Jesus is bringing the attention inward. What's going on in your heart? 
Maybe on the outside, you're in perfect compliance with Christianity. Oh, you've got it down good. You're a good Christian. You look like, you dress like you're supposed to. and You got it all, you got the language down. What are you doing? Oh, I'm loving on them, brother. Yeah, loving the people. But inside, I hate those stupid people. What's wrong with them? They're miserable. I don't Ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. You wouldn't have a ministry if it wasn't for the people. You see that? You see how we can present the outward. And, and what they were doing is they were caught up in the murder. I, won't, I don't murder anybody. Oh, but you've slayed enough people in your heart. You've killed enough people in your heart with your thoughts and your mind, maybe even your words. Jesus is bringing the attention inward. He's not saying they're the same things. He's not saying they're all the same thing. It's not, he's not saying, well, all these are the same thing. It, it's, they all lead up to one another. They all, they all come together. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, Jesus considers it far more important to be reconciled to your brother than to perform a religious routine or a religious ritual. You must not believe that your service for the Lord in some way justifies your broken relationship with another person or in some way justifies your sin. Oh, God's okay because I'm in church today. No, God and I are okay because I put a little money in the offering box. I almost said basket. Box back there. God's okay because, no, God and I are good because I attended church three times this month. No, no, don't make that mistake. Don't, don't do that. So here you are. You're in church. You're here to worship the Lord. And all of a sudden, as you get ready, music starts to play. You think, oh, man. Man, I remember my friend, my parent, my husband, my wife, whoever it is, has something against you. Not you have something against them. They're mad at you. They're holding something against you. You've, they believe that you've wronged them in some way. They believe that relationship is severed, and they believe it's something you did, right or wrong, whether you did it or not. What does he say? He's talking about somebody that you've wronged. He says it doesn't matter if you're wrong or right. Don't stand here and worship and act like there's nothing wrong. Go out there and fix the problem with your fellow man. Go back home and straighten things out with your wife. Go back home and talk to your parents. Go back home and fix it with the coworker. Go back home and fix it. Don't stand here and worship God like there's nothing wrong in your life. There's a problem in a relationship that needs to be fixed. Go fix it. You see what he's saying? You're, outwardly, here I am worshiping God, praise Jesus, and inwardly there's a problem. I've wronged somebody. I've treated somebody poorly. I, I haven't been the way that I'm supposed to be. Leave. Go get it straightened out is what he's saying. That's more important than you going through some religious routine and that's some way justifying yourself in your mind. Go get it fixed. I think as Christians, we walk around with far too many broken relationships because we're not willing to humble ourselves and even go try to make it work. If you're here tonight and you have a broken relationship, whether it be a family member, a loved one, whatever it is, I would encourage you to, when you leave here, go get it fixed. Go do whatever you can do to, to, to bring that relationship back together. Do as, live at peace with all men as much as possible with you. Now, there will be people that you can't. That, there's nothing you can do about that. But as much as possible, humble yourself. Fix that relationship with that person. That's what he's talking about here. Now, if you're feeling really guilty and you're thinking about getting up and leaving right in the middle of this, I want you to you gotta finish the rest of the verse because look what he says. So before you get up and leave, I want you to read what he says. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. That means you've got to put your offering in the back before you go. 
You can, you can tell that the Matthew, the tax collector, is recording this, right? <laughs> you know, he's, he's writing what Jesus is saying. Leave your gift. No, give your gift, but you go fix the problem with mankind. Go fix it. In verse 25, he gives another example. Look what it says. It says, agree with your adversary quickly. While you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Let's say you have a dispute with somebody. You have a disagreement, and you're on your way to court. What's he talking about? Straighten it out before you get to court. Why? Because you don't know what's going to happen in court. You, you, don't know, you, don't know what, what, you don't know how the judge is going to rule. You don't really know what's going to happen. It's much better to solve the problem before you get there, is what he's saying, than one to than put the thing in the judge's hands. Why? We don't have any idea what he's going to do. You ever been to court? Some of you that have been in court go, yeah, I know what it's like to sit there and wonder what the judge is going to do. To, to wonder what the jury is going to come back as. To wonder what the ruling will be. You, you think you know it. You think your side's going to win. You think you're there, but you never really know until it happens. Having been a police officer before I became a pastor, I've sat through many, many trials, and I've watched many trials bo in both times. Sometimes I've thought, man, they're never going to convict this guy or this woman. And you know what? They come back guilty. Other times I've thought, this is a slam dunk case. They're, 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 without a doubt, they're going to be convicted. And the jury comes back, not guilty. And you don't even know why. A lot of times it's just because they didn't like the suit you wore that day. You put it in the judge's hands. You don't really know what's going to take place there. As we come through to the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to continue to draw our attention to the inside of man, to the heart of man, to what's going on in the heart. And I think that as followers of Christ, we need to understand it's true of us too. You see, when the heart gets pierced is when it really hurts. When the heart gets pierced, but that's, what really, that's, where, that's where true change really happens. You see, when I first got saved, I quit doing things that I used to do. But it wasn't oftentimes until many years later that the heart changed. And there became a true desire not to do. No, I had self-control and I could quit certain things, but I still wanted to do them. I still wanted to. Maybe no one will see. Maybe I can get away with it. But you see, when your heart's changed, you realize that's not what I want. You, you take those lies of Satan, you replace them with the truth of God's word. You go, I know where this is really going to lead me. I know what it's really going to cause in my heart. During the remainder of the sermon, he's going to talk about that. He's going to go to the heart. And I think today, even it's possible for people in the house of the Lord to look like Christians on the outside. But I want you to understand something. Jesus goes far beyond the outside. It, he, he looks at your life as you're sitting here in church. Here I am in church. I'm being special and religious. He goes, ah, what's going on inside that heart? I know you're thinking that guy would quit talking already. You're hungry. I know you're falling asleep over there. I know, I, he knows all that stuff. We can't hide it from him. That's the point. You see, we can clean up the outside and we can impress one another with the way we live our life. But when the Lord Jesus Christ looks into your heart, he sees the truth of who you really are. And when you are willing to look into your heart and allow him to show you who you really are, it brings you to the place where you go, man, I need a savior. I can clean up. I can use the Christian language, but it's my heart. It's my heart that has to change. I need a new heart. I need a heart transplant. I need a new heart put inside of me. I'm going to close in prayer tonight. 
and I just want you to take a few minutes. Meryl, who's back there? Meryl's back there tonight. Meryl's going to play an instrumental song, There's, and I'll come back up in a minute. But I want you to take a few minutes, and I want you to pray before the Lord tonight. And I want you to ask him this. Lord, will you search my heart? Lord, will you reveal it to me if I'm pretending to be something that I'm not? Will you show me those areas where I'm rolling my eyes and sighing, compliant on the outside, but rebelling on the inside? Will you show me those things in my life where, where I do that? Where, where I make those mistakes, will you reveal them to me? You see, if it's your heart to truly please God, you want to know those things. You, wanna, you want those things to come to light because they can be dealt with and you can move past. You want that pure heart that's, that's untainted with the sin and the stuff of the world. So just take a few minutes, two or three minutes. Go before the Lord quietly in prayer. No one's going to pray out loud. It's just you and the Lord. Meryl's going to play an instrumental song. Two or three minutes, I'll come back up. I'll close us in prayer together and we'll have one song before we go. So Lord, we just come before you now. And we take these next few minutes and we open our heart to you. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, may they believe on you at this very moment. May they accept you and receive the forgiveness for their sins. May their guilt and shame be nailed to the cross. May they know they've been set free. And Lord, for those of us that know you, would you look inside? Would you show us the hypocrisy? Would you show us that thing we're saying, that thing we're doing, that place that we're... It's not pleasing to you, Lord. Not the outside, the inside. So take a moment. Go before the Lord quietly on your own. And let him minister to you right where you're at.